Today's Ringer NBA show is brought to you by Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, wherever you want, from a community of local hosts. From exotic sports cars to practical daily drivers, you can choose the best car for you, whatever your budget is. Download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play, or visit Turo.com. Get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo and use promo code RINGER at checkout. Terms do apply. Welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is the Corner 3. My name's Kevin O'Connor, and joining me from Ringer Studios in Los Angeles, it's Ringer Associate Editor, Danny Chow. I'm here. Let's do this. And over in Dallas, it's Ringer Staff Writer, Jonathan Sharks. I'm excited. It's Wednesday. It's playoff time. Let's do it. Yeah, man, we're recording this at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, and we're going to break down the Tuesday night games and look ahead to tonight's slate. At the end, we're going to talk a little bit of NBA Draft, too. So let's jump right into this, guys, with the Western Conference. Last night, the Nuggets made a big second-half comeback against the Spurs to win 114-105, to tying the series 1-1, to going back to San Antonio for games 3 and 4. Jamal Murray won this game for the Nuggets after just a dismal, Game one and 0 for 8 showing over the first three quarters of game two. But then, Danny, he was unstoppable in the fourth quarter, hitting eight of his nine shots. And we really don't see many guys who go from borderline benchable for seven straight quarters and then going off in the fourth quarter like Murray did. I was I was really ready to just shout from the rooftops. Jamal Murray sucks. Like I I was so ready. Like I I've never really been too big of a fan. And then he just the shots that he made, it's like there were some shots where he was stepping back, reclining so far back, and you were just like, this guy's unbelievable. It, it was it was a complete like Jekyll and Hyde performance. And I, I'm I'm left dumbfounded. I, I I don't really know what to make of this. Like what what are we expecting from him going forward? Like there has to be some middle ground, right? I think this is who he is, though, right? Like, so in this in the playoffs so far, he shot 16 for 41. He takes really tough shots. Sometimes they go in, sometimes they don't. He's a very confident player, so he'll keep taking them. I think one of the things with Murray, when I reported that Nuggets story earlier this year, both Michael Malone and Nuggets general manager Tim Conley mentioned that what they want to see from Murray moving forward is more consistency, consistency in his effort on defense, consistency with his approach on the offensive end of the floor. But I think one of the things for him that will be a little bit harder to solve is the consistency with his jump shot. Like, as we know, you know, from following, you know, these guys when they're in college, consistency has always been an issue for him. It's just part of the deal with Murray. That's why I think at the start of that game, when, you know, there's rightful calls for him to go to the bench for someone like Malik Beasley, who is a more stable defender and, you know, doesn't need the ball in his hands quite as much on offense. It's understandable. But with Murray, as Malone said, after the game, like you just got to ride it out and empower him to shoot through that um, because the reward was significant. I I think for me, Charks, like you wrote about Derek white yesterday on the website for three quarters in that game last night and in game one, White put the clamps on Murray and like in the draft, that was one of my concerns with Murray. Did he have the foot speed, the quick first step to get by those elite defenders like Derek White? Uh, he's a tough shot maker, like Danny said, but I, I that's my concern moving forward for him in the series is getting him easier shots. So he's everything's not heavily contest, contested against Derek White. 
Yeah, I think as we were talking about with consistency, because as you said, he's not a great athlete, it's just hard for him to create separation. So he's taking tough, really, really tough jump shots. And Derek White, I, I kind of thought that would be the matchup of this series. And it really feels like in those first seven quarters, the Spurs were in control because White was winning that matchup. When Murray got going in the fourth, that really kind of flipped things. And I think too for Denver, really the big adjustment, it's kind of in that fourth quarter, they benched Will Barton, who's been horrible this whole this whole series. Barton's been horrible, man. Like it, it's disappointing. He had that uh that I forget the core injury that yeah, he it had was an abdominal injury. Yeah, the, yes. I mean, that's a very unusual injury for him to have to come back from that affects your entire body. And, and Barton just does not look right. And I felt bad for him, you know, getting booed by a lot of Nuggets fans for somebody he's been, he was here before all this. He was part of the reason why this team has the chemistry that they have, uh, it, why they have the culture that they have with this team. It sucked. It sucks for him that he's playing at this poor level. But at this point, I do think Michael Malone moving forward does need to consider playing Malik Beasley over him, even in the starting lineup, but definitely finishing games like he did last night. Danny, he played the final 12 minutes. Barton played zero in that fourth quarter. Uh, Is this something moving forward that Denver needs to do, or should they continue promoting Barton because of the, the things that he can bring when he's on? I mean, the thing with Barton right now is that this is not, this is just not the Will Barton we've been seeing over the past few years as as like a microwave spark plug scorer. He's shooting 28% from the field in this series, but what what's worse is actually how badly he's shooting on open shots. So NBA.com characterizes wide open shots as having no defender around you within six feet. Barton has shot one for six on those attempts, and his last shot uh, in the last game was just like, it was so sad. So he gets into a pick and roll with Mason Plumlee, DeRozan gets nailed on the screen. So Barton's just wide open in the corner. LaMarcus Aldridge is just like camped out in the paint because he's like, look, Barton's not going to make this shot. Barton shoots the shot from the corner and it clanks off the side oh, of the, yeah, I clanks off the, side yeah. of the rim. Yeah. And yeah. you Very just sad. hear, you hear the Denver like crowd just groan so loud. It was so embarrassing. Like it, it was really sad. They're leaving him open. They're yeah. hitting him with that like uh, no respect defense. And that's the tough part here because Barton does bring that secondary playmaking presence for you. We mentioned how Murray might not be able to be a shot creator or a playmaker when he's defended by Derek White. That's where Barton's importance comes into play. Uh, Otherwise, I think you're going to have to rely a lot more on Monte Morris coming off the bench, which is fine. He's a very steady playmaker. But Barton is the guy who raised your ceiling in the sense that he's not going to go off every game. He's not always going to have big nights, but he's somebody who can. And the fact right now is they don't have that. um, and, And it means more of the responsibility is on Jamal Murray and also the one guy we haven't mentioned Nikola Jokic who the Spurs have turned into a playmaker I don't think they doubled him quite as much in last night's game Um, they were a little bit softer with their doubles but they they do want to turn Jokic into a playmaker uh, rather than being a scorer which he's fine with doing Um, but nobody's hitting shots still on the perimeter for this Nuggets team that hasn't shot the ball well at all uh, since around early February. And for moving forward in the series, someone needs to start hitting shots. Well, that's where Beasley and Morris are important. Those are probably their two best perimeter shooters. Yeah, Beasley and Morris for sure. And then also Paul Millsap in last night's game was tremendous from the start. He was the, the guy who even kept them within striking distance early in the game, driving easily past Rudy Gay. Uh, at his age, Charks, he seems to still be able to make a significant impact. Yeah, they've been killing it, Millsap and Jokic. Really, where Denver's really been hurting is when they have both those two guys off the floor and just uh, Mason Plumley is in. So I look at the numbers. This is kind of crazy. They're minus 50.9 in the 13 minutes where Plumley is on 
and Millsap or Jokic are both off. I, I think you'll see them stagger their minutes. They're two-star big, so one's always on the floor going forward. Yeah, and, and one guy we haven't talked about at all is Gary Harris, who had a great game yesterday. Uh, 10 for 16 on, from the field, 3 of 6 from 3. I think he is the kind of stabilizing force that they have on the wing that would allow them to kind of play a less experienced player like Beasley into the starting lineup. And I, I yeah, I honestly, do you guys think they should swap out Barton for Beasley to kind of stabilize their starting unit? Yes. Yeah, Look, I think so. I yeah. think so, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I think maybe if you do continue to start Barton because he's the veteran, he, he's going to be on a short leash. Uh, I think Beasley, like he was on game two last night, he needs to be the guy finishing games unless Barton is rolling. Um, but he isn't, he hasn't had, had a really a strong, um, streak of games quite, quite a long time, maybe since last season for that matter. And Gary Harris for that matter also, you know, this season had his struggles as well. And this is the first time in quite a while he's paired together a couple of good games in a row. And that's encouraging moving forward for the, for the Denver Nuggets and for the Spurs. I do wonder what are the types of adjustments, Danny, that you think that they should be making moving forward in this series, whether it's with lineups or whether it's doubling Jokic or personnel changes. I actually think they've they've been doing a pretty good job with Jokic. I think Pirtle's been solid enough. Pirtle's been really good. Yeah. yeah. Um. I I would love to see more Bertans. My guy. He's been their most effective player in terms of plus minus. So like to me, the guy who's got to play better is Rudy Gay. So he's not spacing the floor. He's getting kill on defense by Millsap. I wonder if they move more towards Bertans at the four at the end of games than Rudy Gay. Because at least Bertans, that man does not miss open threes. Goes in every single Bertans. time. It seems like. Yeah, Bertans can at least space the floor for you, but uh, probably quite hopeless on the defensive end, though. Though um, that's the even thing more is like, so than Rudy Gay. Yeah, Millsap's been the one who's really hurting them. Is like that, the four spot, or do they go big with LMA and on Millsap and keep Pirtle in? I think that to me is the big question for San Antonio: is that power forward position? Re- regardless of who's next to Aldridge, he, he needs to also step up his game as well. He's only fourteen for thirty nine shooting so far this series. Jokic has done a really, really nice job uh, defending him on the post, and Denver has done a good job as well as helping and and, and doubling Aldridge as well. I think what worked well last night, and something I'd like to see San Antonio go to a little bit more, is the pick and pop with pick and pop with Aldridge. Uh, Jokic has a harder time stepping out, dropping on the pick and roll, and then closing onto Aldridge for his mid-range jumpers that he shoots you know, for an elite rate for mid-range. Uh, I, I wish he would pop to three-point range. Right? But th- it's th- so crazy. Yeah. It's just all easy points. It's just open points are given away. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's really unusual. And like it, I understand because he's a he's a really really great mid range shooter um, and a subpar three point shooter. But um, in the playoffs, I'm a little bit surprised he hasn't extended to three point range on those pops. And maybe that's one of the changes they have to make. Charks. It's just so it's just so weird though because like it was a development that had pretty much been going on since his final year in Portland. And then his first year in uh, San Antonio, he was actually shooting a bunch of threes compared to his career averages. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of went away. Well, I I think Duncan was still there right in that first season. Yeah. So he kind of had to play a little farther out. Duncan was gone. He went all back to his old habits. Yeah, he sh- he shot 105 three pointers in his final season with the Blazers, 16 in his first one uh, with the Spurs, and 56, 92, and then back down to 42 this season. And he hit only 10 of those. It's, it's frustrating. I mean, he's still a 
terrific player for who he is, but that that could be a difference in a series if he's taking more threes than deep mid-range twos. Granted, it was effective for him, whether it's to two-point range or three-point range. I think moving forward, um, a little bit more pick and pop could be useful for the San Antonio Spurs. I would say, too, this has been the best series of the playoffs. I was pretty pumped the Nuggets won last night. I think it should be a fun seven-game series. I'm looking forward to this one going forward. Do you guys feel any more confident for Denver moving forward, or, or is that just really a, a hot fourth quarter for them, and San Antonio still has control, especially going home in the series? I mean, I think there are adjustments to be made on both ends of the floor and on both teams. I think Denver has plenty of things that they can kind of tinker with, and they have shooting, uh, as they've shown yesterday. I mean, they shot almost 42% from three yesterday uh, after a, an abysmal, what, like, 5 of 28 performance in the first game. Like, I think they have adjustments to be made. So I think, yeah, this is this is probably going to go seven. Let's move on to Blazers Thunder. Portland went up 2-0 in the series, defeating OKC 114-94. to Sort of like Jamal Murray did for Denver. It was, it was two perimeter players leading the way for the Blazers to victory. Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum combined for 62 points on 43 shots with 12 rebounds and 11 assists. 62, 12, and 11 sort of sounds like a, a typical night at the office for James Harden. But um, <laughs> anyway, J- Jonathan, with Dame dominating the series, it, it appears that the ass busting has flipped. <laughs> Man, that quote could look really bad for Russ. He doesn't turn it around. He's Russ has been getting killed. Dame is just absolutely crushing him right now. And I think you're seeing Dame really come into his own. How old is he? Like 28 right now? 29? Yeah, and he, he has a game that's like, tailor-made for aging in this in this modern NBA. You Don't know, you he, feel like he could have like a Billups-like second half of his career? Oh, yeah. It, it's just, it's weird because he combines all those skills that have made Kemba Walker into like this, you know, underrated darling, but he puts it into a frame that's nearly as big as Russell Westbrook. So like he's, he attempts so many threes from, from 30 plus feet out. Uh, he attempts the same amount as Steph. The only person who takes more is Trey Young. But Trey Young does that because you know, it, it's a way to like mitigate his size differential. But Dame's one of you know he's a s- solidly built, tall point guard. He should probably keep taking more, really going yeah, forward. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's really a credit to Dame's player development. He's he, like just four or five years ago, he was already a great player, right? But he's continued to get better every single season. And I think at this point, you know, if you're ranking the best guards, best point guards in the league, it's Curry and Harden one and two. And then Damian Lillard's number three. He's surpassed Westbrook and Chris Paul and Kyrie Irving in my eyes. I'd put Drew Holiday in there. Let's not forget that last uh, last playoffs. <laughs> he will always have that on his resume. That'll go on his, that'll go on his like tombstone, man. <laughs> Well, that's a good way to pivot here. You know, with Damian Lillard getting 21 shots and 29 points, CJ McCollum getting 22, 22 shots and 33 points. Is there something different Oklahoma City can do here? They've been, you know, fairly aggressive in trying to get the ball out of Lillard's hands, but not to the extent that the Pelicans did last season with Drew Holiday and all of their defenders. Is this something that Portland, uh, that Oklahoma City should try, or can they even try with their personnel charts? I got two questions. Number one, why is Paul George guarding Al Farouk Aminu in this year? So right now, I'm looking at the numbers. Terrence Ferguson guarded McCollum on 60 possessions. Paul George guarded him on 24 possessions. Like, Paul George is supposed to be a two-way superstar. He's getting paid like $8 trillion. Stop hiding on defense. Get him on CJ because Ferguson's been killing them. They have him on Rodney Hood and Mo Harkless. Yeah, it's crazy. If I got Paul George at the prime of his career, I'm using him as much as I possibly can. And the other thing to me, what I've really noticed in the series, Steven Adams looks really slow out there. 
They're trying to like hedge and trap with Adams and they're getting right around him every time. It's been a underrated conversation all season long with Oklahoma City. I think even when their defense was elite earlier in the season, Adams has not looked right. He hasn't looked the same as he did in past seasons where he developed into a really stout defensive player on the post and in pick and rolls and just a guy who's so friggin' big that you don't want to go near him uh, in the paint. He He's lost a little bit of a step um, that has obviously hurt Oklahoma City's defense as a whole, um, but has, has it made it it's made it harder for them to be aggressive in the pick and roll um, like New Orleans did last year. I, I'm not sure they can do that, even if they wanted to. I kind of worry that Steven Adams is too tough. It's almost like the Amir Johnson thing, where Amir Johnson came into the league um, as this very springy athletic guy, and he just kept playing through a bunch of injuries. And like by the end of his career, like his ankles are like gravel. And you see Adams take these huge hits, and he, he just like walks it off. And I'm just wondering if, like, how much longer can you do this? How old is he? He's 25. He moves like he's 30. He moves like he's 35. I know. I know. And that's the wild thing. It's like he feels like he's been in the league a long time. It's only been six years, though. Um, He's barely missed any games, like you said, Danny. Plays through a lot of stuff. There's. He's not right. He's not right physically, just like Paul George isn't either. And that's why with this Oklahoma City team, it's like, yeah, they're going home uh, for two games uh, down 2-0, but I don't feel very confident in the health of their team right now, and I'm not sure what type of adjustments that they can make in terms of the system besides putting George on McCollum. That is something that they should do, but I don't think that they can change the way they're defending uh, the Portland Trail Blazers. I'm not sure that their shooting is suddenly going to get better. That's something that you can't... (laughs) You can't change. Like it's like maybe Ferguson gets hot. Uh, I would maybe Schroeder hits shots, but it's hard to feel confident about that. Sharks. Ferguson and Grant are the two X factors, and I think that is the big key for Oklahoma City. Those guys looked really scared at the moment in Portland. They're really young. I mean, they don't have much playoff experience. You kind of hope your role players have got to shoot better at home. So the numbers this year, it looks like Jeremy Grant's really the swing. So when they win this year, Grant is shooting forty point four percent from three. When they lose. He's at 33.1%. And if you're not spacing the floor, there's just no room for anyone else to do anything. Well, and that and that's why, you know, with Russell Westbrook, like he has stunk offensively so far this series, only shooting only 13 of 37. He has not been good ever since KD left. And, you know, I've bashed Russell Russell Westbrook a lot in the past for some of his poor decision making, but it's kind of hard to blame him right now when you look at the players around him that are spacing the floor. There's not a lot of good options for him out there. Uh, I think Russ needs to make up for it by playing more focused defense, not losing his guy off ball. Like that is (laughs) that is so frustrating, Charks. So frustrating. He's he's missed a bunch of rim shots. He's had some really careless turnovers. Just dribbled off his foot a few times. Like Russ, let's get it going, man. Yeah, he, he he does need to you know take better shots, um, but but I think it it hurts him not having the amount of floor spaces that you would ideally like to see on a guy that's a downhill pick and roll player. Which is which touches on another part. How has Enos Cantor su- survived in this series, Danny? How? I mean, like, sure he survived, but you watch the you watch the pick and roll coverage, and it's still pretty bad. Like, the yeah. dude the dude concedes so many shots at the rim, like almost instinctively, he drops back so far back, and instead of like actually <laughs> walling the the rim, he's like swiping at the ball way too early, and so he just like kind of lets guys by. It's you it's know, kind I've, of hilarious. OKC's okay, being way too cute. So I looked at the numbers. 
Ennis only has 16 possessions as a defender in the pick and roll in this series. And he's, he's in the 21st percentile of playoff players. Adams is at 26. Like, I'm not running an offense with Ennis Cancer on the floor. I'm not posting up Stephen Adams on Tanner. <laughs> I'm running pick and rolls every single time. Like, I don't care if it's 95 times in a game until he gets it. Because that's a point every single time. Yeah, Billy, Do- Billy Donovan, you created a meme. Just stick with it, you know? Can't play Cantor. <laughs> make, make that a reality. Yeah, I mean, you got to make Portland play Myers Leonard. I think you, you, that is the key to me, is like attack Cantor, get more for your young guys, and then may, maybe go a little smaller. Maybe play Morris at the five, Grant at the five. Get some space out there. I was waiting for Grant at the five. So that's only that's a the, matter of time. That's the trump card right there. <laughs> how, how many minutes into the, into the podcast are we, Dan, uh, Bobby? 20, 21 minutes? <laughs> 20 uh, minutes. It's pretty pretty good for going going small at the five. I like it, Sharks. Uh, is there is there any reason to feel confident, though, about OKC? I, I mean, I'm not confident in them moving forward as somebody who going into the series was. The health of this team is not right. I'm not sure what type of personnel changes. Um can really be made. I'm concerned. Is there any reason to feel confident, Danny? They have great fans. You know, they're going home. Yeah, I mean, I think Ferguson and Grant, if those guys don't play better, this is going to be a core short series. If they can get going at home, this could be a long series. So the four teams that we just discussed, uh, the Spurs, the Nuggets, the Blazers, and the Thunder, one of them is going to be in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, they're in the side of the bracket where the two winners will match up next round. One of them will be in the Western Conference Finals. Danny, through these two games in each series, is there one team that you feel most confident in they'll be playing games in mid to late May? You know, last week I was very hesitant in saying the Blazers, but I, I guess I'll stick with them now. I, I think they have the depth and I think they have, you know, the star power to do it. Okay, Danny, I got a question for you. Sure. How much better would Daniel House make all four of these teams? <laughs> Oh my God. He's so good. I don't know how to answer that question because I feel like all of I feel like all of the Western Conference had their shot at obtaining Daniel House. It's amazing. This guy was on a two-way contract and he would be playing 40 minutes for Oklahoma City right now, easily. Like they, they couldn't kick him off the floor. It really details the importance of pro personnel scouting and, and drafting, right? Because you, you're able to find these cheap players or rookies from all corners of the basketball world and House is making pennies by NBA standards. Meanwhile, you have Evan Turner making over $17 million, averaging only 14 minutes in this series. You have Dennis Schroeder making $15 million for the Thunder. And the whole reason they have him is because they had Mello. And the whole reason <laughs> they had Mello is because they signed Cantor to that big extension. Oh, it, it goes for the back house, see, because they paid Reggie Jack. They wouldn't want to pay Reggie Jackson. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's layers to this, Sharks. Yeah, I, I, and I feel like Daniel House is everything they want Deontay Burton to become. Yeah, it's just like, what are we doing here? Like, House was in Golden State. Like, that could change the whole, like, course of NBA history. They had him in training camp. They let him go to keep, like, eight centers. And he could be playing <laughs> huge minutes for them right now. In that Rockets Warriors series, like... And how much is House going to make this offseason? Like, this is the Daniel House pod now. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's going to make a lot. Dude, get him in Dallas, please. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> for, what, for what it's worth, I like Deontay Burton, Danny. No, me <laughs> too. Me too. Solid pickup. And, and Hamadou Diallo as well. Uh, Oklahoma City has made some nice additions in the back end of their roster. Like Jeremy Grant as well, acquiring him. Um, Those dudes just aren't ready right now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and one mistake can end up really screwing you. I, I think that's really the moral of the story. Or Turner was a mistake. Uh, Reggie Jackson was a mistake. Uh, and it led to eventually getting Dennis Schroeder because of the bad salary in the beginning. Uh, one mistake can really screw things up for your team. You know what it is? I think Presty thinks he has Chip England on his staff or something. He's like, <laughs> oh, I'll teach these guys to shoot threes, no problem. And it never seems to really happen. They just kind of get there. I mean, at least get Alex Sabrinas. Whatever happened to that guy? And that he would be huge for them in the series. I believe he had a, a personal a problem. A personal thing season, that just yeah. never, never really yeah. was uh, elaborated on. But yeah, it's insane. OKC has a hundred like eighty million dollar payroll, and they can't have guys who can open shots. <laughs> and also, Billy Donovan never trusted Abrinas anyway. Like he never really, you know, gave him over twenty minutes per game. So, I mean, I'm not sure he would be a significant impact player either, despite the fact he has a reputation as a shooter. Oklahoma City just hasn't ha- been able to find shooters for a team around a superstar player in Westbrook that would benefit from having shooters. I, um, I mean, when they have, they've been Abrinas types. Like, Anthony Morrow was mm-hmm. the same guy. The exact same player. It's crazy because, like, Harden, of all the guys who could survive without shooting, it's probably Harden because he can shoot from anywhere. And Houston still spreads the floor for him. Like, it's just... I almost feel bad for Westbrook. Like they're putting an ambition to fail right now with all these non-shooters. Charks, Danny mentioned that Portland is the is the team that he feels most confident in of these four. Which one is yours? Gosh, man, <laughs> I could see any of these four make even OKC. I could see them like figuring out at home. Man, I, I feel like this is so wide open right now. Like that Denver San Antonio series probably goes seven. I mean, for now though, we'll have to say Portland. They're playing great the first two games. Let's move on to the other side of the Western Conference backup. Uh, of the, the other side of the Western Conference bracket for the NBA watch of the night, Houston and Utah play tonight in game two. It's at 930 Eastern on TNT. In game one, Utah defended James Harden a pretty similar way that Milwaukee did earlier this season by shading him to his on the left side, trying to force him to go right. Charks, is this something that the Jazz can do moving forward or should they be switching it up? All right, so now we're at uh, 26 minutes. So we'll go it we'll again. Um, when Rudy Gobert's not in the game, let's just go small. Like, what is Favors doing here? I think it's Kenneth Freed anyways. I'd love to see, like, Thabo at the five, switch the screen, make Harden work for points. Like, to me, I, I don't see why they're going big the entire 48 minutes. And So you want Utah to begin switching screens in situations where Gobert is not in the game. You want... That's that would be your what your move is. I think so because like right theoretically, Gobert is a good enough rim protector that it makes sense to like move your defense to support him on the floor. But it's not like Derek Favors is going to stop Harden getting where he wants to go. I don't think. Here's my thing. It's like in game. I, I didn't watch game one live. I watched it the following morning, and you know I said this to Verno yesterday um, on the show. But like, oh, there were so many tweets about how pathetic the defense was against James Harden. And like he did create countless open shots. For the Houston Rockets, he got into got into the paint over thirty times during the game, and it looked easy for him. However, I do think there there were some good things that Utah was doing while Gobert was in the game. First of all, they forced him into seven floaters, which is the shot James Harden does not want to take. He wants to take the step back three. He wants to get to the rim. He only took three free throws in the game. His twenty nine points came on twenty six shots. I think they did a good job forcing him into floaters. The problem was everything else. It was the off ball defenders. Not not being in the right positions to close out on shooters to clog passing lanes. And I think that's where Utah with their days off between games one and two, those are the the adjustments that need to be made. Not what's happening at the top 
not so, not exactly what's happening with Gobert either. It's everything else. And then maybe, you know what? Maybe James Harden still kills you. And maybe it's not going to work because he that's what unbelievable offensive players do. But I do think that there is at least some good signs uh, that this could be effective for them moving forward. Yeah. After after game one, Ricky Rubio, uh, I think, talked to reporters and said that shading Harden was kind of going to be an emphasis all series, not just this one game. So I don't think they're going to back off on that strategy, at least for game two. Uh, but the thing is, when you do that, like you're leaving a lot of things open on the floor. And you're leaving, you know, some of the best corner three uh, shooters in the league open. And Gobert can't defend the paint and, you know, run out on some of these guys. So it's like, you really have to pick your poison even when you're doing that. Even when you're, you're stopping Harden. There are just so many weapons on the, on the Rockets' side. Yeah, and Milwaukee has Giannis. That makes it a lot easier to play three on four on defense. When you have a guy like that running around the floor. Utah doesn't have that kind of crazy athlete. Yeah, the, the Bucks just have better length, better overall defenders. You have Eric Bledsoe, uh, who's a better defender than Ricky Rubio at this stage, defending Harden. Uh, I wonder if maybe trying Royce O'Neal in that role could work a little bit better um, over Ricky Rubio. That could be an adjustment, but I, I, I think it was fine. It, it's, it's really just about clogging those passing lanes. And ultimately, for the Utah Jazz, even if you s- help, help improve things on the defensive end of the floor for you, your offense just does not have enough weapons. Yeah, I mean, Quinn kind of ran off all the guys who score one-on-one on that roster. And now it's everyone who runs his system really well. But like running his system can only get you so far if you only have thought of Mitchell creating shots for people and getting his own shot off the dribble. Charks, you wrote about this um, on The Ringer today, correct? I, I haven't read it yet. I was preparing for the podcast. I'm sorry. But I, um, I, yeah, I, was just I talk- think I, you did mention the offense, correct? Yeah, yeah I was talking about how like Houston kind of like exposed Utah on both sides of the ball and how it's... Um, I think they're one and nine now in the last three years against Golden State and Houston. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's basically the the gist of of the Jazz, right? They're they're good against twenty eight other teams. They're good against you know the majority of the league. It's just the two teams at the top are so well equipped to exploit all of their weaknesses because they're just built around a really old school type of player. Yeah, I think to me, if I'm Utah going into next year. I've got to be more versatile around Gobert. Like, you got Gobert. He has his strengths and weaknesses, but you don't need another backup five like Favors. You got to have more versatility in the other spots in your lineup if you're going to have a guy like that. Yeah, and that's what we could see moving forward with Utah. Uh, Favors being a free agent coming up. Uh, maybe will we we will see those changes for Utah around Gobert um, and see a different type of roster moving forward, uh, building around him and Donovan Mitchell. If you want to watch every NBA game, subscribe to NBA League Pass on NBA.com or your local cable or satellite provider. Let's take a quick break, guys, and hear from our sponsor, Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer car-sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want wherever you want it from a community of local hosts. Turo is available in over 5,500 cities across the United States, Canada, the UK, and Germany, with over 9 million users worldwide. You're able to choose the best car for you, often at a lower cost than traditional car rental agencies, and customize your experience for whatever your adventure demands. Turo has over 850 unique makes and models from Tesla to BMW to Subaru to Toyota they have it all whether it's a truck you need on moving day a sports car for a luxurious weekend away or a nice date or a vintage van for a picture perfect road trip Turo lets you find the perfect vehicle for your next adventure 
Toro has more than 350,000 vehicles listed globally. And many hosts often deliver the car right to you. How easy is that? Insurance options are available on every trip too. You can skip the rental counter with Turo. It's great. Download the Turo app. That's T-U-R-O on the App Store or Google Play or visit Turo.com. Get $25 off your first trip when you sign up for Turo and use promo code RINGER at checkout. Terms apply. Let's go back to the corner three. Let's move on to the Eastern Conference, guys, and go through some of these games. Uh, Raptors beat the Magic last night. Not just beat them, dismantled them 111-82 to after losing in Game 1. Uh, Kawhi Leonard it was dominant last night, scoring 37 points on 22 shots. Kyle Lowry did not have a goose egg performance uh, in last night's game after his horrific Game 1. Danny, it, it seems like for Orlando, Game 1 might have just been a blip. <laughs> Yeah, you think? <laughs> I mean, like, Kawhi out there, was, it, it honestly looked like like, Jor- like Jordan on the Wizards punking on the, the, you know, B team. Like, he was just getting anywhere he wanted, hitting all of the pull-ups that he wanted. Um, Lowry was almost, like, abnormally aggressive getting to the rim. It was all clicking. Like, 41% from their threes. Uh you know, Leonard's one of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the league, and when you can kind of leverage your talent like that with, you know, Marcus All setting really great screens, look, the, the Raptors have an easy have an easy way to to just sweep the rest of the series. Danny, I, I, I'm offended by your response because I, I thought last night's game, it was one of the all-time great defensive performances against NBA superstar DJ Augustine. Oh, man. Yeah. That, that's, what a, yeah. <laughs> truly <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable performance, holding Augustine to nine <laughs> points on one of six shooting, only four assists. I, I thought what Toronto did last night against him was just um, something to remember for a long time. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think the guy for Orlando and the one guy I care about is Jonathan Isaac. Like, so he played forty minutes in their win in Game One, twenty three minutes in their loss. He's kind of he's kind of their Jeremy Grant. When he shoots well, they're a decent team. When he doesn't, they're very beatable. So to me, it's just like the playoff series for them is developing Isaac, getting their young guys more experience. That's the key going forward. Yeah, I think for Orlando, that's really what this is about. Like, it's nice for them to make an appearance. It's nice for the young players to get playoff experience. It's a it's a team in a city that hasn't seen their team seen their team get to the postseason in over a century. Uh, so I, I think for Kevin Clark and the rest of the Magic fans, it's a win already, especially to get that game one win. And I think for Toronto, it's in, very encouraging to see what Marcus Gasol did last night against Nikola Vucevic. I thought the energy he played with in containing Vucevic bodes well for them moving forward regardless of the matchup um, in the second round the Eastern Conference Finals or in the NBA Finals for Gasol to show that he turned the clock back and looked like his old self um, in his 22 minutes um, Danny that has to be a good thing for Toronto absolutely I mean l- let me count this up so he had nine points he had five assists that led to one two three four five so that's 10 19 points and he also had 11 screen assists so that's 30 points that he generated for the Raptors. In only 22 minutes, too. Yeah. To me, the concern for Toronto is like, they're suddenly not that versatile. Not at After all. they traded DeLon Wright, they've lost OG for at least two rounds. They don't have much perimeter size anymore, really. They're, they're counting on Norman Powell to play a lot of minutes. Kawhi's going to have to probably play 40, 45 minutes in these later playoffs. Can he do that? I don't know. 
I I would hope not, and that's why I'm kind of I'm kind of hoping that the rest of the series we see a little bit more of Malcolm Miller. <laughs> oh, Holy Cross! Yeah. Oh, I love Malcolm Miller. I look. I love him. Six six seven two ten. Um, great shooter. He was a th- career thirty eight percent three point shooter in the G League. Um, like why not? Why not try him out? Why not see what he can do? Because they're going to need that size later on. I think Patrick McCall is going to come back eventually. Uh, you worry about him just having not played for weeks, but he gives you that, you know, tall athletic edge in the backcourt. I don't know. We we just kind of have to see some of these guys because it's not getting any easier. Can we spend another 10 minutes on Malcolm Miller? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually have Malcolm Miller take for you. Please. See, like, this Let's is what it. I, it's going back to Daniel House, actually. This is why I really <laughs> like Houston because Houston would be like, oh, he's, he doesn't experience. Who cares? Get him out there. Houston's never afraid to try guys with the physical tools they need for later around in the playoffs. There's a lot of teams, organizations, oh, he's a young guy, doesn't have experience. Let's just Billy Donovan bury him. But Houston would play him big minutes, and they will need Miller going forward, so they should play him in the series. Take Jody Meeks' minutes, man. <laughs> like, really, what are we doing here? With Malcolm Miller, you have a guy who's six foot seven, a fluid athlete, a good shooter, plays hard, works hard. He's somebody who I think, whether it's in Toronto or some, somewhere else at some point in the future, He's going to be in the league for a while as a 3 and D player. And, and for Toronto, maybe he gets some minutes on the back end of their bench. Um, and maybe in, you know, towards the end of the series, if there's another blowout. Um, but in the future, I do think he's somebody that could be like a Daniel House getting an opportunity to get heavy minutes on a contending team. He's a good, good player. Masai doesn't bring in guys who can't play. Even like Bruno is playing well in Memphis now. Like if, if he comes to Toronto, they probably have some talent. That's a pretty good barometer, I feel like, these days. And also, it feels like the organization has rallied around Malcolm Miller. They they signed him to that late, you know, multi-year contract uh, at the end of the season, I believe. So, you know, prove that love. Give him some minutes. Also, I love how I'm Brian we are. We're having like a five-minute Malcolm <laughs> Miller discussion. <laughs> I'm, th- I'm thankful. Thank you, guys. It, it means the world. I, I really, really like Malcolm Miller. Uh, good player. Uh, let, let's move on to the Bucks Pistons series. Um, Milwaukee's up one nothing. This series is over. Blake Griffin may not play at all. It's very sad uh, that that Detroit's going out this way, Danny. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but you did do a video. With sure. Justin Verrier called hashtag dethroning the Warriors. And your episode yesterday focused on the Milwaukee Bucks. Tell us a little bit about that series. I mean, it's really just, you know, we we wanted to do something uh a little fun, a little analytical, um, kind of riffing off the the success of, you know, uh a show like The Flat Circle uh that Chris Ryan and Jason Concepcion did uh with True Detective season what, three, four? I don't watch. I don't watch TV. Just <laughs> uh, <laughs> watching Malcolm Miller highlights. There's no time. You, you don't watch TV, Danny. Have you Have you ever watched TV in your life? Like, what are your favorite all time TV shows? Oh man, yeah. This, see, this is exactly where we're where we're headed in a Milwaukee Bucks Detroit Pistons. Uh, this is some elite hipster takes well, from Danny, though. Well, not I'm, watching I'm curious now. You know, I mean, like, I don't watch much TV now anymore either. I'm watching Game of Thrones on Sundays. Right. I'm not a Game of Thrones guy. Morning. Yeah. Not a Game of Thrones guy. I mean, it's, The Simpsons is is my my all time number one. Okay. How about you, Charks? What's your favorite all time show? Uh, I gotta go with Seinfeld. That's a show I've I've wanted to binge watch for a long time. It's I genius, like, man. It's yeah, genius. It, it, every time I see a clip or watch an episode, I, I'm laughing constantly and I'm out of breath at the end of the episode. Yeah, let's give this series the uh, Andre Drummond when Donna shoots threes hand wave. Like, there's nothing to say about this one. <laughs> good, good idea. 
Good idea. Fantastic. Good idea. Great and, it's, and, it's sad, and it's sad to say that, but it's the truth. Uh, let's move on to the Pacers and Celtics. Celtics play are up 1-0 in the series after beating the Pacers 84-74 to on Sunday. They play again tonight. I'll be at that game. Danny, it, Sunday's game did not go well for the Pacers on the offensive end of the floor, I, it ha- as it hasn't for the past couple me- weeks without Victor Oladipo. Uh, how can you get Boyan Bogdanovich going? Because that's really their only option right now. Um, I mean, start the pick and roll at half court and, and see if he can launch, you know, 28 footers for the rest of the game. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you want Bogdanovich to be Damian Lillard and Stephen Curry then. It's, it's, they need him to it, be, you know, yeah, like, I, yeah. I don't know where else they're, they're generating yeah. like high level, high efficiency shots. Yeah. I, I think with Bogdanovich and the rest of that roster, it, look, they're going to have to, have their defense have another great performance like it did on Sunday, holding Boston to 84. And they just need to shoot the ball better from three with the shots that they are able to generate um, despite their lack of shot creators. It, it's it's hard to feel confident for Indiana. Uh, the fact they're even here is a, is a, you know, it's a win for the franchise. It's a win for Nate McMillan as head coach to, to get that team playing well for quite a while after Oladipo's injury. But I, I have a hard time expecting much more from this team um, against the Celtics. They just have more depth, um, better star power as well. Kevin, I'm, am I wrong to feel some Boston optimism? Like, this team is kind of coming together. I feel like that second-round series with the Bucks is going to be a war. So Al Horford in Game 1, he was plus 31 in his 32 minutes. The man's a playoff machine. Yeah, Horford all season long. I think we might have talked about this last Friday too, but all season long, he has not been quite himself. He looked like himself on Sunday, didn't he? Oh my God. And so in his 16 minutes off, he would, they were minus 29. That's a, like a 70 net rating swing. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, Horford is is one of those guys with the way he spaces the floor with the five for the Celtics. Um, his switchability on defense and his room protection. Uh, he he may not be the best player on the team, but he's arguably the most important player on the team because of his two-way contributions, even, even over Kyrie Irving. He's going to give Milwaukee a lot of trouble, man. This is gonna, that's going to be a heck of a series. Yeah, he has no weaknesses at the, at the five position, and that's basically all you can ask for out of a playoff performer. Yeah, my favorite Horford stat. So in the last four years, his teams are 7-0 in the Eastern Conference against anyone but the Cavs, 0-4 against the Cavs. <laughs> He's a killer, man. Yeah, It's going to be interesting to see what Horford does because he, he has a player option for $30.1 million, million next season um, that he can decline if he wants to. I, I do wonder if he will opt out of that and try to get a longer-term deal because whether it's Boston or somebody else, you would think despite the fact he's 32 years old, he has a game that can sustain into his mid to late thirties. So I, I wonder maybe for him, it would be beneficial to try to get that payday one year earlier um, and avoiding like another year of getting older, another year of potential injury and everything else uh, with, with Horford, Boston needs to try to keep him regardless of whatever they do this summer. You know, obviously they want Anthony Davis, um, but Horford is a guy, you know, he's part of the culture of this team is a leader on this team and is critical to their success on both ends of the floor. Wait, Kevin, is, is he a player option for this next year? It, it's a player option. Yes. So could they even trade him this summer or could he be like, I don't want to do that. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like, he has the power to, you know, Ooh, say I didn't he's even think opt about out. that. Right. But the thing is, is his opt in date is January 29th. Right. So Boston cannot actually trade for Anthony Davis until July 1st. Uh, so Horford would have to make his decision before July 1st. Um, even though 
odds are Boston or another team would would negotiate that deal for Davis before that date Wait, anyway. You said you mean June 29th, right? What did I you, say? you said January 29th. That kind oh, of confused me. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, June June 29th. <laughs> okay. My bad. I don't know where my head is at. It is definitely not not on contracts. Now right that now. I think about it, like <laughs> if Horford tells Boston, I don't want to go to New Orleans. If you trade me, I'm not gonna like that could really mess up their plans, couldn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Boston has options. They could also try to do like a sign and trade involving Terry Rozier, where maybe he gets paid quite a bit more than he might somewhere else to 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 satisfy the requirements in a, in a deal for Anthony Davis. Um, but really, like with David Griffin getting hired as general manager for the Pelicans, let's use this to pivot to the draft. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what the Pelicans do this summer because you know there's always a chance Griffin will try to keep. Anthony Davis in New Orleans will try to talk to him and say, here's the things that we can do as a franchise to turn this into a winner. Um, But ultimately, I think Griffin, uh, as he himself said on NBA TV, like you probably have to appease the player. And I think Boston still is at the top of the power rankings. If you're if you're ranking teams that have a chance to trade for Anthony Davis because of their draft capital, Uh, they're one of the five teams in the league that have multiple first round picks on top of all the other assets on their team. Uh, Those five teams that do have multiple picks are the Hawks, Cavaliers, Celtics, Nets, and Spurs. Um, So with having flexibility in the draft, guys, one of the ranges that teams commonly trade up into is the late lottery or middle first round. Uh, In that area of the draft, is is there any player, Danny, that stands out to you as somebody that that you would like to see him trade up for, whether it's a specific team or just a general player for any team? Yeah, I think Brandon Clark from Gonzaga makes a lot of sense. He's he's an older player. Uh, He's going to be 23 by the time he gets into the the league. Um, A guy who may not have the kind of, you know, all-encompassing superstar potential, but he can be a superstar in his role on a certain, like, team. And, you know, I, I look at teams like the Grizzlies and the, and the Wolves in the actual mm. lottery who might want to get them. But, like, as a, as a role-playing center who can kind of do a little bit of everything and is just a really smart defensive player, a really strong athlete, um, you know, the Celtics, the Spurs, the Nets, they could all use him. This is a Brandon Clark fan pod for sure. The dude is great. Yeah. Yeah, we all we all really like Brandon Clark, and you know, I think in this year's draft class, especially, um, you know, where there's so much uncertainty with some of the younger players, uh, I think Clark is somebody who, at his age, can come in and contribute for you a little bit earlier, and and there's value in that, as we've seen from players across, you know. The playoffs. So someone like Landry Shamit, the performance that he had in that stellar game two comeback for the LA Clippers was remarkable to watch. Like he he put on an absolute show for that team on both ends of the floor. Um, we've seen it everywhere across the league with these older prospects, Malcolm Brogdon, who are able to come in and help. And I think Clark sort of fits that criteria as well. Right. Yeah, Clark in Minnesota would be incredible. If you had Clark in Town Square, that could be a serious, that could be real. I really like that idea. Is there is there a player who's maybe a little bit more of a risk that stands out to you, Charks? Yeah, to me, I, the guy I kind of like is Kobe White. I could see him having a wide range of outcomes. Like he really came on this year. He wasn't seen as a one and done guy, and now he's he's going to go in the lottery for sure. He's a six five point guard, good size, good athletic ability. He could shoot it. To me, this guy could end up being the best point guard in this draft. 
Yeah, we have um, the Ringers 2019 NBA draft guide will be updated on Thursday and Kobe White's profile will be in that. I, I'm not super high on White. Uh, I have him ranked 16th in in the draft right now. Where, where do you have him, Charks, out of curiosity? I'll, I'll probably have him a top five or six. I haven't done my rankings okay, just whoa. quite yet. So what is your, <laughs> okay. thi- what is your thing with White, KOC? Yeah, so I mean, what he does well is shooting, right? He's a good three-point shooter uh, off the catch. He's got a quick release, um, and he can create space as a ball handler as well. There's signs of him being a shot-creating guard. Um, my concern ultimately with him, Charks, is that quick release also happens to be pretty low as well. Um, he's had his shot blocked a handful of times against college defenders. I, I would worry about that for him against NBA defenders as well. And as good as he was shooting off the catch, he wasn't nearly as potent off the dribble. So I, I just wonder with him, if he's not exactly playmaking, if he's not, if his shooting off the dribble isn't great, I'm not confident what he does for you um, when he's not a uh, necessarily a plus defender either. There's a lot of potential there, um, but I, I I don't feel a lot of confidence in him as, as a top five or six guy by any means. See, I think playmaking can come. I feel like in Roy's system, it was such like a run and gun, just jack shots whenever. I think in a more kind of slow it down. I think he has the basketball. Like he's made some good passes this year. I think Roy made him more of a score first player. This is a, this might not be a positive. Is he like a bigger Terry Rozier? I don't think he's he's quite the vertical athlete, and and he's probably not. He's definitely not as tenacious on on defense. Um, but I like me and KC were trying to come up with comps for him for the guide. Um, I think on the low end, I I'd, I'd kind of gone with Roddy Bobois. Oh, Roddy B, Dallas legend. <laughs> And then on the top end, you know, I had Jamal Murray, and then we also had Brandon Knight there as well. Um, Murray would be a good outcome for him. Uh, he's a different type of player than Murray. He's a lot quicker. Um, but that low release that Murray has as well, um, it's some, it's, it might be, I might be overly concerned about the release to be, to be fair. Um, but, but it, it is something where his shot was blocked a handful of times at the college level. And I, I do think that needs to change. And anytime you're talking about a guy changing mechanics, entering the league, um, there's no guarantee that it works or that they're even going to ever do it. Uh, and, and that's just something with white that I, I do worry about. Well, I mean, that's same thing as jaw though. Jaw's kind of got a weird release. And I oh, feel yeah. like with white, white is of those, all those point guards, white's probably the one who can switch. Of like Jaw, Garland, White, all those kind of lead ball handling types. He's the most switchable guy of all of them. He's about six five. Yeah, say. he's got a, he's got a good frame too. Yeah, yeah. And and one thing that I noticed uh, watching him was that he was kind of developing a step back three uh, later on in the season, and that could be that could be a real weapon for him uh, going forward. Especially you know like when Chark says when it starts slowing down and and when he has to kind of create more in a half court system. Yeah, and White is somebody who, if you're having him, if you have him ranked five or six on your board, whether you're a team or you charks, uh, if uh, he is probably going to be there, you know, at 10, 11, 12. So if he's a high value player that you think is worth swinging on, um, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think at that point of the draft, I would have no, no arguments in trading up for him at all. See, to me, four through 12, it's going to be really fluid. Like I could see a lot of guys moving up and down over these next few weeks. There's not really. I mean, I think you have like Zion and Jaw is pretty safe and RJ will be up there. But after that, it's so up in the air. I could yeah. see it really moving around over the next few weeks. Four through 12 and even something like eight through 25 for that matter. Uh, th- this year's draft class, depending on who you talk to, like I have Kevin Porter ranked 22nd. Uh, there are other people who might have him in their top 10. That's right? a boom bust guy for sure. Kevin oh, yeah. Porter. 
No doubt about it. Like bull bull. I have him ranked 14th. I could see somebody being, being like, you know what? Screw it. This guy is a great shooter and he's over seven feet tall and he showed defensive potential despite his injuries. A team might be like, we're taking him sixth because he's the highest upside guy available. Um, but I can also see a team pulling him off their board entirely. That That's what makes this year's draft so exciting in the sense that there's going to be surprises on draft night. Um, and, and I look for, and I just can't imagine being within an NBA front office where your GM and your assistant GM and your lead scout all have drastically different opinions on players. There's going to be a lot of a uh, great war room debates going on. We should talk about Darius Garland. It feels like he's kind of the real unknown hanging over this draft. So I didn't go back. I've only watched one game. I got to watch more of his game. He's only played like four or five in college, yeah. but that's a guy talk about a range of outcomes. I think, you know, this is actually a good way to, to wrap up the pod with Garland because what we've sort of talked about from the start with Jamal Murray and, and Damian Lillard are these shot creating guards that are leading teams to victories in the postseason. And Garland has the potential to be that guy. He, he's got really good instincts in the pick and roll. Um, he's quick with the ball. He knows how to change speeds already. He's ambidextrous. He can score, score with either hand near the rim and he can shoot as well and shows good passing ability. Uh, the only question with him really is that he's undersized um, and his shooting and his uh, release is also low as a shooter too, but he has the ingredients to be a really, really good shot creating guard who can pass or score for you. I, I think for him, um, I would feel comfortable to, as, as long as he's healthy, drafting him around five or six in this year's draft class. I think one thing we'll have to watch in these playoffs is we haven't seen it quite yet. Cause series have just gotten going is like how much are teams going to pick on these smaller guards? Is that going to be a theme going forward? And that's a question with a guy like Garland, a guy like Trey young too is in a playoff series. What's going to happen if he gets stuck on pick and rolls against like elite wings? And how much does that even matter versus getting guy into the playoffs? That's really kind of, I feel like that's like the draft philosophy question I always kind of go back and forth on. If you've got a guard I know is a good regular season player, but has playoff limitations, how much does that affect where I rank a guy? For sure. And, and like that was the conversation last year with Trey Young. I, I had him ranked too low. I, I made a mistake on him. I, I overvalued um, his deficiencies on the defensive end of the floor um, in my ranking of him. But like the evaluation was sound as it is today with him. It's like he's a very potent playmaker and he is a very good shooter who can sometimes be great. But defense for him could become severely problematic to his team in the postseason if he's not able to overcome it on the offensive end of the floor. And that's always a question with these guys that are undersized as you said Charles can their offense reach a level where it outweighs any flaws on the defensive end of the floor um I think one thing that should be noted is we were updating you know our our big boards and our personal rankings all throughout the playoffs and so it is good to note that hey we were watching a playoff you know run where matchup hunting was the single most definitive like takeaway from the entire playoffs and so yeah, it definitely colored our kind of perception of these play players and and how they would kind of react in the future. And so I think I think it's going to it's going to continue, you know, this season. It's going to continue in the coming months. It's going to happen with Garland. It's going to happen with a lot of these players. Yeah, like I talking about matchup hunting like in all these series like the Spurs for example, they could match up hunt Jamal Murray and Monte Morris with DeMar DeRozan. The the the, the Thunder could match up hunt CJ McCollum with Paul George. Like that could still happen. I feel like that's kind of the uh, overall these series is like as these series goes on, we're not going to get automatic easy buckets. Guys, that's all we have time for today. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jenny. Of course. Yeah, it was fun. Wednesdays. Yeah, man. Wednesday. We'll be back next Wednesday. Looking forward to that. I like, I like the new date. I like being in the middle of the week. It's cool. 
Thank you for listening to the Ringer NBA show. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends if you do like it. And be sure to check out the ringer.com too. We have tons of stuff up on the site and the NBA draft guide will be updated on Thursday as well. Special shout out to Bobby Wagner for producing the podcast and a special shout out to my friend Brian who got married on Saturday. I wish I could have been there, man. Happy for you. <laughs> Were we uh, giving shout outs <laughs> now to randoms? I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> hey, my buddy got married. I wasn't able to go even though I got invited. I was sad. Um, but anyway, <laughs> thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Okay, shout out, uh, shout out my pastor, Zach Daniel, <laughs> listen to this uh, podcast. What up, Zach? <laughs> I love it, Sharks. Uh, Have a good week, everybody. Cheers.